I would like to invite you on a voyage, a crusade, or a quest, whatever you'd like to call it. But a journey nonetheless that began for me many years ago when I hit my own personal metaphorical iceberg. As we all navigate through these uncharted, turbulent waters, this perfect storm entrenched in such polarized shards of dark and light, I hope to use this vessel to unearth and share a few of the beings from around the globe that can hopefully offer some respite during this ambiguous time. I call these individuals the torchbearers, the stewards, or the bridge builders. And in this era of false heroism, dare I even call them the true influencers. We ask the question, who do we recruit aboard this proverbial ark? The ship that will be navigating perilously through this new and unfamiliar territory with a view to reshape and regenerate our relationship with the animal kingdom, one another, and the planet Earth. The only home we know. These are the stewards, the thinkers, and the doers. Accompany me, Rona Mitra, as we voyage onward toward the shores of our undeciphered future. On the last arc. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Last Arc with me, Rona Mitra. Thank you very much to everyone for joining me once again on my humble little arc as we chug stealthily and yet not so stealthily through 2020. But are we or aren't we? Or are we? We could be like on a cruise liner or are we on a little kind of rubber dinghy with lots of holes in it. I suppose it's how you look at it really, isn't it? Um, but it's quite bananas that we are tottering up towards September, scratching our heads, wondering how on earth we got here. It's probably a really good question because I feel like we're always so busy just pioneering and plowing on. So maybe maybe it's a good time to stop. So last week, I'm going to warble on too much because we have a really big episode coming up. I wanted to leave as much information in there as possible. Last week we discussed science and, and viruses and vaccines. So we're discussing a lot of the problems. So I really wanted to introduce what I what I consider to be a really a really important part of the potential solution. And I know a lot of you have heard me particularly use the word permaculture and um, I know a lot of people already know a lot about it. Some people who don't and think it's just a type of farming, regenerative agriculture, there's all sorts of biodynamic farming, all these terms that get bandied about. And I think that we get a little bit confused and maybe turned off even like the fads or movements. But um, some of you may or may not know that um, I had the good fortune when I pressed eject on, I suppose we can call it a chapter of my life about gosh, I think it was about five years ago now, and I moved to the Southern Hemisphere and I started working with land and animals and water. And it's been a Herculean feat and it's been a humbling experience. But before I set off on that journey, I made sure that I spent as much time educating myself um, on systems and spending time with people who had been walking the walk and were walking the walk. So, you know, we have these incredible teachers and torchbearers out there for us to tap into. Um, so I f- feel really privileged that I get to introduce you to just a sort of uh, a, a gem. He's not even a diamond in the rough. He's just, uh, you know, out there just shining. But um, 
if you want to go and find him and truffle him out, I definitely urge you to. His name is Don Tipping and Don and his family have stewarded stewarded Seven Seeds Farm, which is now, I'm going to say this wrong, Siskiyou Seeds. And it's been for 15 years and it's still growing. It's still moving. It's up there in Oregon. They produce fruits and vegetables and seeds and wool and eggs and lamb. It's lauded as one of the best examples of a small, productive, biodynamic and permaculture farm. So it's kind of flying the flag and and doing its thing. And that's what we need more of. We need proof in the pudding, as they say. Don is currently serving as the president of the Family Farmers Seed Cooperative. So he he's just basically the seed Jedi. And also some of you may know that I had a I had a great influence in introducing that into a show that I was part of and um, I made them, it was an apocalyptic show and I'm so glad I got them to talk about seeds um, because it just was just not what was on the menu at all but you've got to sneak your carrots into the kids' food when you can. So um, this is a this is a, an area that I'm deeply impassioned by. So sit back, get a paper and pen. There's a lot of information. I'll pass you over to Mr. Don Tipping. I'd love to know what you think on the other side. Enjoy. Good afternoon, Mr. Tipping. How, how, how are we today all the way up in Oregon? I'm doing well. Thanks. I'm really thrilled that we reconnected and mm-hmm. I'm not entirely surprised that it's at this juncture where we find ourselves as a species. How are you finding yourself and how are you navigating um, through this particular moment? And given where we're all at, let's just say the proverbial Titanic has hit the iceberg were were you anticipating it and if so what 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 systems do you think that you had maybe psychologically emotionally in place because i know that you have your setup there with all of your with your farm but could you ever have imagined that this was where we were going to find ourselves in 2020 um well deep down i feel like since i was a teenager i've always had a sneaking suspicion that the dominant paradigm was built upon a fairly flimsy foundation. So, you know, and that really led me to agriculture and and permaculture and trying to come up with some other solutions. And I I like that you use the image of the Titanic because I've thought about that for a long time and perceived most people, at least here in North America, is basically rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And some of us have gone about building more lifeboats and i feel like this present time in at least in the industrialized world is a good time to to actually rearrange the deck chairs of the titanic but into a circle so that we can plan and reorient what are the priorities for for human civilization and and i feel like a lot is up for assessment around the way we structure society and so i'm really grateful to have my little 40 acres, I don't have a mule, but uh, now I'm seeing that it's really important to those of us that have some ideas of proven techniques on the ground to help others spread this out more because I can't accommodate everybody here and we need to get a million more little micro farms happening all over North America soon. At least North America. I, yeah. and, and, and 
but this this awareness, this preparation, this let's call it BC and AC. When I don't even know if there is an AC or why we even discuss the possibility of an AC. We're here right now in this moment, but let's just say before the the, the metaphorical arc hit the iceberg. And I do like to refer to Michael Rupert's. Uh, well, he, he encapsulated it quite well. I don't know if you read his book, Collapse, oh, yeah. when he likened, and he was, I think, specifically using the United States as the, uh, <laughs> the champion of this analogy, when he, he likened this, 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 this country and the planet, really, we're all on board the same vessel, to be honest with you, is that if, uh, if, if, if the ship's sinking, we're all going down with it, pretty much. Or not, and that's what will kind of unfold and 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 pick apart um, throughout this conversation. But the way he described it is that when the heart, when when the tip of the boat is at the bottom of the ocean, you have those who know how to build lifeboats, those who want to learn how to build life lifeboats. You have the deer in the headlight crew, and then you have the chaps at the bar drinking their bourbons, listening to the band as the yeah. as the, as the shimp. Uh, sinks on in sweet denial and I, I for sure have come across all of those and and what's 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 become very um, I, I think more so in my own growth and my own awareness of inclusivity and recognizing the lack of separation is that my my, my brother and sister's suffering or demise is is only going to be my own so it behooves us and benefits us to all try to help each other to guide people towards those who know how to build lifeboats, those who want to deer and height headlight crew and the guys drinking the bourbon. Obviously, you know, it's, 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 it's easier to put our energies towards those who are ready to sign up. And in this particular time, but where we're, where, where we're, where, I think that a lot of people are waking up and there is this realization that what has gone before, and you've described it as, an old mapping, you know, a map that is now pretty much rendered null and void, has been for a long time. COVID is almost a gentle way of stopping us in our tracks. And so we have this moment where the bow of the boat is halfway down, but it's almost in, it's, it's almost kind of there in limbo. And so what is our opportunity right now in this time? Because obviously we're still I call it on the naughty step here in America and the rest of the world. There's nothing that's going to be going back to where we were before. We have an opportunity to rewrite the systems and to look at what this new mapping is about. I think that there are a lot of people that don't even understand how we got here and what our disconnect from our mother is. And if we were to identify who she is, I would really love for you to connect us to the essence of what Gaia means to you. So maybe we can start at the beginning so we can take a journey as to how far we have strayed from our relationship with her. Sure. Thanks. Well, uh, probably most of us don't really stop to think that we live on a planet that's next to a star. And that star we call it sun, but it's 93 million miles away and its light takes seven minutes to get to us. And you know, there's so many processes, whether they're chemical or biological or some other mysterious force that we haven't yet named that result in our life. And at this present moment, I, I think it's interesting that 
COVID is a virus, but the leading edge of virology is, is considers viruses exosomes, which is like a messenger uh, that's communicating from one cell to another, one organism to another, hey, there's a problem. Get ready, there's a problem. So in a way, COVID is the knock at the door that oh, in a way we were expecting or not expecting that there are many problems. And so, you know, Gaia works as this beautiful orchestra and if you will, the sun is the conductor in a way because the solar cycle drives the hydrologic process of the water. The moon is part of driving the tides, the whole photosynthetic process of which, if you think about it, it's miraculous that plants consume photons, light, and mix it with uh, you know, minerals from the soil and water from their roots and produce sugars that become all the food for all the browsers, all the animals, all the oxygen for everything that consumes oxygen. And the, actually the most catastrophic, I think this is a, a little, maybe it's not a pass off the naughty step for humanity, but to consider that the biggest biodiversity crash that's ever happened here on Gaia was when the advent of oxygen came about. Because before that you had all these organisms that were anaerobic, you know, little simple single celled things that oxygen was toxic. And then all of a sudden oxygen showed up and killed off most of life on the planet. And then fast forward a bunch of years to about 3 million years ago, in which the, the whole climate on the planet was more subtropical and there was mixing between the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean because the volcanoes that comprise the spine of the Central American countries of Honduras, Guatemala, Belize, in that part of the world, those hadn't erupted yet. So the waters could mix so that you didn't have cold areas and warm areas. And three million years ago, when those volcanoes began erupting and making new land, was the point at which the Earth was at the highest total biodiversity of, from the fossil record, the most amount of species. And if we think of the term in terms of an arc, you know, I personally look at my farm, and I think anybody doing permaculture should look at the ecosystem they're interacting with like an arc. What's the total amount of biodiversity? How many, it's almost like a baseball card collection or something, or a record album collection. You want as many different options as possible. So we go to that point three million years ago and biodiversity has been notching down. And sure humans are definitely contributing to this this accelerated thing, but it's not all on us. And I think it's important to recognize that humans aren't a different species and uh and, and we're actually all every single human being right now and I feel like we're having that deep conversation around race and equity and inclusion. We're all the same species. We're team human and we need to join team Gaia really and recognize we are all part of the same biosphere that is you know we're just perhaps a symptom of a process that is resulting in a change in how we relate to what's normal so you know going back to photosynthesis and I'll just kind of close this piece with understanding that we're just molecules that are fueled by photons, and we're temporarily inhabiting that. And as we know from quantum physics, that molecule, 99% of it's empty space. So you can think of it, that's just light. You know, when we hear we're light beings, that, that is a very uh, actual literal term because we consume plants or we consume animals or animal products that came from this uh, photosynthetic process. And when everything dies, everything that's alive is impermanent, we leave behind carbon. So it's funny that humans have come into a position where we're not in good relationship with the carbon cycling on the planet. We put too much carbon in the air and we want it in the soil. So that's a bit the knock at the door with COVID is really 
ultimately about the soil and this deficit. And we look at, you know, we grow the economy by creating debt and we've created a CO2 surplus in the atmosphere by depleting our carbon bank of the soil. And as permaculture and regenerative agriculture is just going to bring it like this, which ultimately brings it into balance like that. It's, it's a pretty simple thing. We could, it's, it's like basic arithmetic. This is not a chess game. It's more like tic-tac-toe. And I think if people grasped that, maybe they would get to work and participate in solutions. With all the intelligence and obviously the solutions and the systems that uh, are abundant and, and we, we, well, abundant, I say, but they're there, they're available, and there is the knowledge, renewable energy, different regenerative agriculture. Um, I think that the first step is really getting everybody, team human, as you say, which I love that, is that first of all, we need to understand what we are capable of and what our common goals are and what our, and unify on that and unify on the fact that what went before was defunct and dysfunctional and unsustainable. Because unless we do that, the systems that we're talking about implementing potentially are going to be not only falling on deaf ears, but in order to be able to build those life rafts together, um, the impetus won't be there. And there isn't an understanding of who our others are, you know. And first of all, realizing and recognizing and connecting to um, and identifying, let's say, what we're talking about, bacteria, viruses, even the rocks, the plants, the insects, bacteria and fungi are and may very well um, end up, you know, being the custodial species and take over long after we're gone. You know, that's an entire possibility that we'll have mushroom men walking around long after we're here. And that's, that's not silly talk. That's a real possibility. Yeah. What's, before we start talking about all the different systems, where, how do we get there and what, how do we identify this malaise? But maybe without getting too heavy, it is heavy, but this Wateko, or, which is something I came to understand and learned about when I was in North Dakota, is this malaise, this sickness. I think that maybe it would be a good way to understand what we've been going through and what we've been suffering from. Would you like to take the bat on, on that one? Sure, yeah. And um, it's... That, that term, Wetiko, I was introduced to by a man named Jack Forbes, who was a professor of mine in college, a native man. And it's, uh, from what I understand, it's an Algonquin word that means that which is cannibalistic of culture or spirit. And so when the first uh, white settlers arrived on the eastern uh, seaboard of the, the United, what's now the United States, it wasn't then, though. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't then. It was, you know, Turtle Island or however they, they had a word for it. Um, they looked at these people and they're like, well, they have a head, they have two eyes, two arms, two yeah. legs. They look like us, but there's something wrong with them. You know, the way they're relating to the land and each other. And, and this word Wetiko is it, that a sickness of the spirit. And I think it, that's been driving us. And you can see how it's just, it, it divides people into smaller and smaller groups. So rather than being a circle and having a whole and recognizing you know, that we're all part of the biology of the planet. We're all living things and we all need to drink water and breathe air and food and we have waste and, and we have hands, we can help each other out. So I think when we recognize those commonalities, it's really easy to get on board. And I like to think 
there's a bass player named Victor Wooten. He played with Bela Fleck for many years. And he says, we, we got the right notes, but we play the wrong songs. So and we have the right notes of air, water, soil, seeds, uh, the knowledge of how to bring all these together, fungi, and there's, our knowledge base just keeps increasing. And the, the challenge is, or, you know, to go with the music metaphor, like Beethoven says, most of music is really the space between the notes. So how are we organizing that space between the notes? Are we organizing it into one that is melodious or dissonant? And right now we're seeing a lot of dissonance and maybe that's what we need. Maybe that's a shockwave to disassociate the existing structures so new ones can come together. And that's why coming into permaculture, um, which I believe is a, a, a pathway to bring us out of Wetiko and back towards resilient culture, there's uh, three ethics, care of the earth, care of the species and redistribute the surplus. It's really simple. There's no dogma in that. It's really basic. Every, every being that's alive adheres to that uh, principle. You know, even a fairly simple animal will defend its young. And when it dies, it's redistributing its surplus of its body back to the, the carbon cycling system. So for us as humans, we have this really precious opportunity because we've taken form in this body with the mind and there's all this technology and we can do the technology like a mycelium like here you and i can reach many more people from our homes and hopefully uh bring some benefit to help people organize and i really like this idea of find the others it's not really useful right now to uh identify those that you disagree with because in time it's like tom sawyer painting the fence of he could ask them like, hey, you want to paint this fence, but just make it look fun. Make it be the, where, where the party is in a way. And I feel like in the future, the party is going to be uh, intact watersheds with forests that produce clean air and have a healthy uh, you know, climate, microclimate. It's going to be those watersheds that produce clean water, the springs, those communities that understand regenerative agriculture and the balance between how much wild nature you need and productive agriculture that will become the lighthouses that will be, or as I've, I just heard recently, we don't need community supported agriculture. We need to look at agriculture supported communities and the farm at the center. And these are different farms than the giant tractor, but a resilient farm. And that's where the food and the seeds and the medicine and the art and the beauty that's inspiring the culture that flowers out of it. And that's where we all came from. We all came from villages. And you may just have to go back a long way to find it. Well, you said something there. Um, thank you for that. Um, which is, when, at what point did we break away from that circular, that's, that circular way of being and we've become this singular, right? This linear, mm -hmm. um, which um, when, you, when you adhere to the cycles, then what we're really talking about as opposed to I mean, ideally, what we would be doing would be, it's not even migrating, we would be nomads, we would be moving with the land and moving to where, you know, the fish come down the river there. And then, you know, it's this, it's, 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 it's the listening and moving with that, with, with, with the system. What point did we break away from that? At what point did we become linear? And, and it feels to me that, you know, when you turn the ignition of a car on and it's like, rum, rum, rum. <laughs> Yeah. We, we're stuck in the in in this cycle. Let's just say we got stuck in the consume bit. So we're eating. We're the serpent eating the tail, really at the moment. Um, 
what, at what, what point did we disconnect from that cycle? And are we in fact in a transitional phase where consumption and cap, let's just say, because we've called it capitalism, we've called, we've, we've umbrella termed that movement, but it's a symptom capitalism, isn't it really? It would seem to me that there are too many people that don't have even, you know, a back garden, let alone half an acre, or even understand a fraction of what it is that you're, you're um, uh, suggesting we could introduce. So, I, Yeah, I get where you're, you're headed with this, because this is the, the conversations we need to have with the people that aren't yet realizing they need to, like, be in that, find the others. They don't realize that they, they need to join Team Human yet. So how do we, how do we entice them? And one of the things I like to think of is we've all heard the term be a jack of all trades, but a master of none. And I like to think that we want to be a jack or Jill of all trades, but a master of one, because some of us don't have agricultural skills. Some of us aren't um, shepherds or, you know, foresters. And so that's a big skill set. So what, what do you know? What can you contribute now? So then when we look at the, a more recent arc of humanity where 11,000 or so years ago, we, we initiated the Holocene era. And then this modern time since we've discovered fossil fuels, 1865 is really defined as the Anthropocene. So if we go back to that time when the Holocene started, that's about when the Sumerians initiated writing. And so with agriculture, you had to figure out how much food you had to store for you to feed your family. So with writing began time. Before that, as a hunter-gatherer, you just woke up and you did your life and the sun went down and you went to bed and you did the same thing and you moved around with the seasons and the climate and the monsoons and you were just in this circular ebb and flow pulse. I don't really know because I wasn't alive during that time, but I can just imagine in farming you touch that. So with the writing of things down, we, we defined a past, a present, and a future and we can make plans and contracts like saying... I owe you money, so I have to do this to pay back my debt. And that's kind of the paradigm we've been living in. And we've been creating more and more debt financially, uh, the carbon, water cycles. Like, what did I hear? Seven out of the 10 largest rivers on the planet no longer flow to the ocean year round. That's staggering. Yes. We, we've changed. So these are all these, what I call a hockey stick narrative on like an xy graph we can imagine human population it just moves up logarithmically fossil fuel use everything uh pharmaceutical drug use you, you name it everything is moving on this hockey stick narrative where it it's cruising along at a slow rate of curve and then it just arcs up to a vertical line and i really like what jamie wheel said is maybe we're entering a time where we realize the hockey stick narrative isn't a vertical line but a curve going the other way and I think that's what's happening right now is COVID is turning everything upside down and maybe our pockets are emptying out and our minds are emptying out because we're moving into a place that's upside down. We don't get to return. We don't get to march back down that hockey stick, back to villages and tribal living. That's not happening. And as the Gaia Hypothesis co-founder, um, he founded a, 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 with Lynn Margolis back in 1971. Um, his latest book is called The Novacene. And this is the idea that with AI and technology, we're actually moving into a new era of human civilization. And because humans have such a big influence on the planet, it really is what's happening for the planet as a whole. 
And as much as my Luddite self doesn't like this idea, I have to accept it that it's, it's fairly accurate. So within the Novocene, basically humans combined with a, a really benevolent artificial intelligence. And I know in the Buddhist community that they're working to help develop not only artificial intelligence, but artificial wisdom and mm -hmm. artificial rationality and mm -hmm. artificial compassion. So I'm like, okay, that's, so what if there was an app that every time you tried to buy something, it said, um, you have the money, but your ecological footprint budget is like way off. You, you did this over here and no, you can't buy that ninth pair of shoes until you do these service acts. Like what if AI began to intervene like this? that you had to go plant a hundred trees before you got to consume something. <laughs> you know, like maybe that's how you get off the naughty step. And I'm just riffing and making this stuff up, but I'm, I already see it happening. And I'm, I have two teenage sons and we're using apps to train them about saving money, investing, understanding, you know, these basic things. So what if we could task all these brilliant, uh, you know, 20 somethings that are designing apps that are concerned about climate change, they see the world as it is, it's, you can't hide it. Um, and get to work, you know, again, if you're the Jack or Jill of all trades with a master of one, and that one happens to be that you design video games, how about design video games where you have to, in order to proceed in real life in the video game, I know a guy who started a game called seeds the game, you had to take a picture of yourself planting a seed in a garden. And then you had to take a picture of yourself holding a vegetable that you grew and then you had to mail something to somebody else like you couldn't move forward in the video game without achieving real world things with tangible benefit not just to humans but to other beings you know so what if or, or that you had to like figure out how to grow milkweed and raise monarch uh, chrysalises and and then you had to you know have a dozen monarch butterflies hatch in order to move forward in the game of the, the the, you know, what is the new version of the capitalist system, you know, so something where it's we've woven in ecological processes and, and rehabilitation and restoration and, and service just to humans, you go help out some disabled people, some veterans, go, go get a garden happening down in the ghetto, you know, I, it, it seems really simple to me, I wish I lived in a city sometimes, so I could maybe be proven wrong, but I, I think we're, we've got work to do. I love, I love that. Did you just coin that, that term benevolent AI? Is that something? That yeah. Just, yeah. It just, it, that just, it, it makes me laugh because my, uh, my, I don't know if you saw my email, my sign off is sent for my weapons of mass benevolence. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I think that there have been computer games actually that have been um, moving in that vein, you know, through sort of mental, emotional, psychological progress. I just, wonder whether or not the, the the dopamine and oxytocin hits and the all of those cortisol things that source you know soar through our veins when we do good versus bad and what the motivation and incentives are for the outcome and you know you you and i have both seen what the power of working in the garden does for the soul for the for healing i mean i i think that the power of of of, of permaculture and gardening obviously has healing that goes way beyond just the kind of the production of food and and maybe putting a cap on this economic growth resource depletion you know um that's that there are inherently coupled and 
when you have these, you know, ends justifying the means way of thinking, which we are stuck in, we are constantly going to be in a state of destruction. And so we're always striving for this unattainable thing that we've been, that's been dangled in front of us, which doesn't exist. It's, a, it's an invisible drug. It's chasing the dragon. Um, but it's been instilled through, you know, there's some ancestral limit lineage in, in some of us that really needs to be written. That's, that's you know, trauma, trauma lines beyond trauma lines. And so that work, first of all, on a separate level needs to be done or else we're going to have this reflex, this default to go back into, oh, wait, I know the fast track to the thing that I want and need, which is going to make me feel whole. And ultimately, this, I, don't, I don't think that what we're looking for ultimately is this word happiness. I think that we are actually striving for wholeness, for connection. Mm -hmm. But I feel that a lot of us haven't even been given the opportunity to experience what that feels like when we are in resonance with it. I mean, I'm really down with neuroplasticity right now. Yeah. I'm really into the retraining of our habits and empowering people with that knowledge and myself included. I'm so on that journey. But, um, you know, this, this, this salt lick we're on, um, if we are, if we, if we find ourselves like flapping around in the water going, no, where's my lifeboat, which I think a lot of people are, what, tell us what and how it is that permaculture and what this permanent culture looks like and how it can possibly be scaled and integrated into society as we know it. I'm talking to people who live in apartments. I'm talking to people who have potentially the opportunity to disconnect from a lie. What, come on, how, do we, how are we going to do it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I... I think it, you raised some really good points there around, you know, some of the, the trauma that is driving the way people or communities or groups of people behave. And you can't just say, snap out of it, that there, there has to be a little bit of a, a, a walking through the forest or going for a horse ride, you know, where you're, you're aligning yourself with bigger forces. And Goethe, the, uh, who inspired Rudolf Steiner, he once said, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. And I've been really inspired by this man, Orland Bishop. And he um, grew up in the uh, northern part of South America uh, and then did work with gang members who were experiencing high levels of recidivism in the Watts, LA area. And he was using traditional rites of passage from his South African heritage with Malmadoma Somme and recognizing that a lot of these angry young men were still just living out the unmetabolized grief of slavery that occurred hundreds of years before. So he wrote an excellent book called The Seventh Shrine that looks at this big arc and the journey of slavery, what they called the Middle Passage. So first, it was European ships came loaded with goods to trade with the, the chiefs, the, the, the kings, or the leaders of villages who then would you know, sell people. And then that journey happened here. So that was the middle passage. And then the last leg of the passage they did as a ceremony in the early 90s to go back and heal in Africa at all those ports, this journey, and then go bring this experience back. And I'll share a little story of, there was one young man he worked with who 
he began to mentor in these rites of passage to help heal this. And then the man had a lapse and went back to jail. And for seven years, Orland Bishop kept a plate at his family's table for this man while he was in jail. And he wrote to him the whole time and said, hey, whenever you get out, come over for dinner. There's a plate waiting for you. And he didn't know when that was going to be. But I think that's what we need to begin to cultivate in ourselves is that we don't know what sitting at that empty plate looks like, but we need to affix a point in the future where we imagine wholeness. Like, and as you pointed out, like happiness is not the goal. It's, it's, it's feeling fulfilled because mm-hmm. we go through states of happiness, but they all end. So happiness ultimately can be a path to disappointment because that happiness ends. Mm-hmm. So again, where do we move the needle to the nadir point of our compass of orientation of where we're going? So when, I, when young people come and work with me on the farm, which I've been doing here for about 25 years, we read a book called The Ohaloni Way by Malcolm Margolin. And it describes pre-colonial uh, native cultures in the San Francisco Bay Area, what everyday life looks like. And it's beautiful. It's, it's tear-jerking. It, you feel it nourishing yourself because very few of us have ever had that kind of life of being born where your parents and all your ancestors are born. And just it's worth a read. And then we would read The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk, which is basically describes now, the time when everything's falling apart and a new new models are emerging and, and coming together and we're, we're defining new gender pronouns, new, new methods of commerce, new methods of agriculture, new methods of healing, you know, it's all around us. We have all the right notes. We're just learning to play the right song. And then I have them read a book called Always Coming Home by Ursula Le Guin. That's a fictional narrative, again, situated at you think in the Bay Area but it's maybe like 500 years from now. So much time that a whole new culture, new songs, new myths, it's a totally new thing. Um, and they've settled in kind of an Amish level of technology of horses and horse-drawn agriculture. Um, but I find that that's really helpful to bookend because human beings are actually prophetic. Like you and I could say, oh, a year from now, we're gonna meet up at this place and we'll have dinner. And we can picture what that's going to be like. We're not there, but we can visualize the future. So how, if we refine that ability in ourselves, of, and we can't visualize the whole world, but little parts, we can visualize and set that point. And then this body is just a meat bag. Again, we're photons. We're just photons uh, fueled by a star. That's most of what's going on here. And mixing with sugars and molecules with spin of electrons and all that kind of stuff. And this is not woo-woo. That's actually the, the, the smartest people have figured out. So if we know where we're going, then this meat bag has no choice but to move in that direction. And then when we hit crossroads, and, we're, and we can ask ourselves, of, does this lead to that you know, theoretical point in the future of wholeness, of being healed, of intact watersheds, of communities that are at peace and uh, everyone feels cared for? You know, like everyone's going to have a different narrative based on the trauma and what you didn't have. So I feel like you have to make a painting, write a song, like whatever your process is to figure that out. And that's really what permaculture is. When I look at the designer's manual, what draws me in is the pictures, not the words. And then we can form a mental picture and then move towards that. And I look at my farm and many of what's going on now, 25 years later, I saw really clearly. It took longer than I thought to get there. And I feel like many of the processes that are like, hey, high five, we made it. We may not live long enough to see that. 
but we may be able to start those things that maybe you know to go back into the hobbits and shire that people will sing songs and tell tales of of remember back in 2020 when everything was falling apart and some people had the audacity to dream a new dream and i don't think permaculture is the answer the answer we don't really know what it is it's like over there and that's why that book always coming home is on the level of the lord of the rings in terms of the magnitude of that book and what ursula le guin channeled and i i feel like those processes are a bit of this neurohacking because we're we've been indoctrinated by our school systems and stuff to we our agency to dream that big to dream a new story and then it's not just the story that becomes the map of how we get there right but really there is no map it's different for everybody you have a piece i have a piece and i think it's going to be like one of these things where we put it together and then it's like Ah, Eureka. But letting go of that. Do you remember when people used to talk about, hey, what's your five-year plan? And um, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of ever seeing Tony Robbins speak, and I don't really care who I offend, but it's terrifying to me. Yeah. But, you know, because it's all, it's, it's so based on, you know, this visualizing ultimately what your ego desires. It's all these external things that are going to make you who you are, where you'll finally arrive, yeah. you know, which is such entrapment. Um, and it's funny because, you know, we talk about this, this Rome wasn't built in a day and you, you realizing that when you're working on land and you're working with your farm, how long has it been, you said? 25. 25 years. Did you have an idea in your mind of what you thought that would look like at the beginning? I just, I wanted to look like the pictures in the permaculture book where a pig scratches its back against a thing that pumps the water into the trough for the horses, you know, and I'm not there yet. And I think we could make it really fun. And again, like, what are we going like, to do with the old Walmarts whenever that whole thing collapses? Well, we're going to have to do like epic mushroom farms to, to have like figure out what is the right mycelium to bioremediate the like diesel fuel depot. And like, we're going to have to retrofit all this stuff. Like, what do we do with the aircraft carriers? Oh, they become like mobile uh, greenhouses and we're growing seedlings on the journey over to the desertified areas because we've learned that we need the Sahara to be reforested so that we can heal this place. And we only win if we all win. And that's where I think you know, maybe the video games are helping kids dream bigger. Like I saw a thing of the scale of Minecraft to the known size of the, our like galaxy and Minecraft is like bigger. So you got all these kids and they're actually thinking that expansively. They're already in the quantum realm. How can they apply it though? There has it to has be. to, yeah. There has, it has to, be to grow roots. I mean, my older brother and I are 18 months apart, so we're as good as Irish twins. And how we responded to our childhood trauma, which was beyond dysfunctional, which I, we were taught to brush under the top carpet, frankly, because that's what you do in England and you do in Ireland and mm. you don't really talk about it. So it's stuff that's manifested later on in life that obviously we all get to look at or not. But he went to computer games and graphic novels and I went into pure, unadulterated, feral mischief. And ultimately, we've ended up with our trauma actually meeting us at every single junk juncture saying, you don't get to move forward until you actually engage with what it is that your soul is here to do. 
what it is that this meat train, as you described it, this vessel, this vehicle, this, I mean, it's a, it's what I call the cartoon life. Um, you know, when people say, what do you do? I get so tripped out. I have no idea really what that means. So that one of the analogies I like to use is like we're in a sandbox as kids, you know, when we used to build sandcastles. And that was like literally the most awesome game. You know, for, for me and most kids, if you were on the beach and you were making sandcastles, you were so in your groove and it was just a, it was just the happiest state to be in. And then another kid would come onto the beach and you'd be building a castle and either he'd stand in it or you know someone else would help you build another turret or a moat but that's what you were involved in and I, I feel like we're at a stage where can we just all say that we kind of like we, we screwed up an awful lot we've made a huge amount of mistakes our, our our human ego has taken us to a pretty dangerous place for us and for the planet um, who wants to stand in the sandbox with me and build sandcastles right now? And kind of just just bringing it back to that moment and then and then seeing what the universe has aligned for us. But, and then we have what I call the, the, the torch bearers or the, the boat builders or the bridge builders who are the people like you or let's say our grandfathers, godfathers, Bill Mollison or, you know, uh, Buckminster Fuller. And we, there's a myriad of them. Yeah. Jedi legends who exec, I call them, you know, sort of executive hobbits, <laughs> but um, it's all there for us if we're still enough and open enough to listen to, to, to it. So how do we get out of this idea and this mindset of what we've encapsulated as success, that profit equals success? That's a good question. I, I've thought about this a bit and and that profit doesn't really exist in nature. You know, in permaculture, really, it, it just to quickly define it, it's just a new buzzword for an old way of being. And so it's nothing new, really. It's just it puts it in terms that maybe us modern humans can understand. And it, it's really another way to look at it. It's the toolbox that holds all the tools of sustainable culture. So if we're patterning off of nature, and there's a great term called biomimicry by Jane Benris. I believe she coined that term. Yes. Um, you know, where we want to mimic nature. So in nature, profit doesn't exist. If an oak tree makes a lot of acorns one year, a bunch of squirrels come and eat them. The birds come and take them. A bunch rot on the ground. Some grow. Some, uh, you know, get uh, aborted early because uh, some moth larva eats them or everything becomes carbon in the soil. This idea that we measure our personal success or the success of our economies or nations or regions by GNP is just purely a construct of our imagination that we, the, we would be well-served and definitely the biosphere would be well-served if we would just get rid of that. And so another way to look at this to tease this out further is I think a lot of people are in this race to figure it out fastest or to uh, be most known, get the most likes, be, you know, achieve some kind of status. And that's like, if we look in nature, what does that like a, well, obviously like a virus might do that, but, or maybe to take it back to a tree, a willow tree grows really quickly on the stream side, but the first big windstorm comes along and the branches snap off where a flood comes along and washes it downstream. So its glory is short-lived. And willow don't really make seeds that other things eat. Whereas an oak tree takes a long time to grow. It's very slow. But then, you know, and we can think about this in terms of the accumulated wisdom of moving slow and 
resilience and weathering the storms and the branches that grew too quickly break off in the big snowstorm. And I think if we want to pattern ourselves or uh, a society or a culture off of something, that's, you know, permaculture and all these uh, whole systems ways of looking at reality are, they give us examples all over the place. And I listened to Michael Mead this morning, and he was talking about the Kali Yuga and out of the Vedas, the, the Hindu view of cosmology. And the Vedas describe these yugas as ages. And the Satya Yuga was the first age of humans when we were really tapped into spirit. We were guided by intuition, uh, your average person, their dreams, and every, every, they were just in tune. And there was a lot of harmony and peace in those times. And then gradually, through the various ages, we became divorced from that insight. So now we're in the Kali Yuga, and that refers to Kali, who is a, a goddess that is destroying. You know, she makes things go away. But during the time of each Yuga, the seeds for the next one are being planted. So right now, the seeds for the next Satya Yuga, the new, you know, uh, uh, balanced age, are being planted. They're happening against a backdrop of a maelstrom of insanity and destruction and greed and, and where the places profit leads you, you know, of having a, a stomach that you can never fill with food. You're, you're cramming food in when really what you need is air or you need, uh, you know, to play in the sandbox, as you say. So I think it's important to remember that even though we, we look at the news, we, we open up the paper or look at our news feed and we see just like all this bad stuff happening and that. If you, if you think that that's actually the narrative of, of the paradigm that we're in, that's just one of them. And another way to look at this, I listened to a, a quantum physicist describe the Big Bang, and it's basically based on Einstein's theory of reverse gravity, but it happens less often than normal gravity. But, so when it happens, you go from a tiny, tiny thing, you know, which is literally the size of a pin to the size of the present universe in a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. And as far as we know, that's how the universe was created. But it didn't just happen once, it's happened over and over and over and over. But each time it creates a new universe with different rules of physics. And the Buddhists tapped into this, meditating in caves. Other mystics have tapped into the same paradigm. And the quantum physics say, we can prove this by math. So again, this idea of planting the seeds for the next age, maybe it won't have to take hundreds of thousands of years or a thousand years. Maybe it'll scale really quickly and then kind of, Circling back to, I forgot his name earlier, James Lovelock, the uh, co-founder of the Gaia Hypothesis, who's now 100 years old in his latest book called The Nova Scene, is describing this fusion of humans and technology, which is frightful because we have all these images of the Matrix or Terminator or all these dystopian narratives. Like, what is a, a, a Gaian uh, narrative of using technology, which is just a construct of human ideas? It's just a tool that we have. It's really no different than a hammer or a garden hoe. Uh, it's a lot of the same processes that we use to create an iPhone. So what if we could use this to accelerate the, the growth of those seeds into the next age? And I feel like that is what appropriate permaculture looks like. It's not all everybody in their garden. Because if we do the garden right, you could garden for two hours a week and have a good amount of vegetables. So what are you going to do with the rest of that time? And depending on your skill set, it's going to look like figuring out how to develop new systems of barter and economy that aren't based on profit and infinite growth, but are based on velocity of transaction and dollar turnover 
which is the localization movement, how to build wealth in a community instead of exporting it through things like Amazon and Whole Foods. Or it may look like um, theater and arts to help kids that grew up in urban centers and witnessed a lot of intense things heal from that trauma. You know, depending on your skill set, permaculture is going to look like a lot of different things. And I think probably in different communities of color, they have terms that are the same thing as permaculture, but I don't know them. And I think it's really important to have a broad enough mind to consider that. And a, a colleague of mine, he uh, is really prominent in the traditional ecological knowledge movement. He's a Karuk man from the Klamath River area of California. And traditional ecological knowledge is basically what kind of permaculture did the native people use to survive without metal tools. There's a lot to learn there. And I, there's probably infinite ones out there. And again, I think just if we remain open, the notes will assemble themselves into beautiful melodies. And part of it is the space. We don't want it to be so frenetic because right now it's just like too many notes. It's like industrial noise. And if, uh, that's not my, my jam. I want, you know, some, a better interval. And like you're saying, some pauses, because sometimes we say, well, there's something happened. We have to do something. And sometimes the best course of action is waiting. That's how the oak tree got there. Oak tree just grew slowly and went through, you'll go through the California central Valley and it's 110 degrees. And there's a big stately Valley Oak just sitting there growing slowly and making tons of acorns and enabling that whole rich ecology of all the deer and the bear and the mountain lion and the rabbits and all those grasslands and all the bugs and whatever's in the soil. So that's how nature works. And we want to be like nature. And so I think again, those, when we get to those crossroads, that's what permaculture is advising us. That's what all like whole systems things are saying, observe and interact. And when we're in observation, we're not making assessments. We're just using our senses and letting it meld with whatever sense of spiritual centering we have. And I think that that observation of nature nourishes our spiritual connection. And I think that's true the world over. And I think during COVID, there's a lot of people that are getting a lot more time in nature. And I think as we move through this, we're going to see again, that hockey stick narrative is going to bend around into a circle. And, you know, when we're old, I really hope and pray that we get to look back on that and say, you remember that time when we thought it was all going to crash? And really, we were just giving up hope because we couldn't imagine it being different than the way we've lived. If we're still here to, uh, and we're fortunate enough to be sitting around a campfire somewhere. Yeah. Recollecting. Well, these distractions and these narratives that are, well, you know, if we disappear, then um, the earth is going to survive and she will continue. No, she won't. That's a myth. That's a, that's a convenient lie that we tell ourselves to remove the accountability. But she doesn't exist without us. The world is going to get, the planet's going to get hotter and hotter. And with our relationship with her, we create this... Um, and this is where you're going to have to help me out, but we do create a perfect temperature whereby biodiversity, where things exist and thrive. And now we're creeping up and getting over that point where that temperature is going to render the planet Earth uninhabitable, not just for us, but then everything will actually die off. And then once she dies, that sweet spot temperature, we can't start that rebirth process again even now, 
that window has passed. So in fact, in her maturation, where she is, what, two billion years old now? More or less? Is that how old Gaia is? Four. Huh? Four? Four for the planet, two for life. Okay. Well then, well, Gaia is the life. So that's, yeah. I was right on that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Team human. Yay. Pom-poms. Um, so she's, and that's all relative because whether or not that's old, nobody really knows because we don't know how long this journey actually goes on for. She may be, she may be a toddler still, but we do know that with temperature, uh, if, it, with that sweet spot, um, which we pass that if we keep on going up and up and I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about our relationship with fossil fuels and about oil and, um, and minerals and our, are ravaging and pillaging, and I'm gonna call it rape. But um, if we don't trade up our relationship and our <laughs> our consumption of that, then we're gonna cross over into that line where we render this planet uninhabitable. And so Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and the chaps who wanna take us up. Yeah, it's almost like a, a techno misanthropy. When I <laughs> When I first got, you know, kind of got woke to ecology as a teenager, I, I really aligned with that misanthropic idea of like, maybe the earth would be better off without the humans because everywhere we go, we seem to make it not as cool. Yeah, in a way, I'm, unless I'm, your I'm idea. on that team. I'm with yeah. you, Matt. I'm still kind of in that team, yeah. I have to tell you. You need to bring me over to Team Human from time to time. <laughs> yeah. So, but as a father, I'm like, okay, well, I've got skin in the game, quite literally. So I want to, um, you know, help fix this. And I think sometimes it's just a, a little reality shift. And you mentioned Buckminster Fuller earlier, and somebody once asked him, do you think humans will ever get to space? And he just, his answer was so classic. Where do you think we are? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, again, like, it's so obvious. So, and humans are part of the life of the planet. So there isn't a like, well, wouldn't the earth be great without humans or we could all leave and go to start a Mars colony and it would be great. And we could just export things like Noah's Ark up there. But I agree with you. I think, you know, like the UN has said that we can expect to, in the next few decades, see a hundred million climate refugees need to migrate out of North Africa into Europe, most likely. You know, so you look at what the Syrian refugee crisis looks like. Imagine a hundred million people needing to leave North Africa. And that's just there. Think of all around the place, the planet where it's going to become too hot for the humans, which also means it's too hot for many of the other living things. There are wildfires in Australia. I don't need to create a synopsis of what's wrong, but I do want to share my favorite plant. And this is a, a, a good story that for me compels a lot of hope. About 120 million years ago, the CO2 levels on planet Earth were five to seven times higher than they are now. Uh, we hear a lot of things with the 350.org or the 400.org kind of Bill McKibben thing that CO2 level, levels have never been this high. That's just during human civilization. They used to be so warm, it was tropical vegetation at the poles. And so during this time, the amount of water in this very moist environment where all the water was in circulation, it wasn't frozen up in ice was emptying into, and the continents were in slightly different positions because this was so long ago, it was more like Pangaea time. Up at the, where the North Pole would be, 
an aoxic condition developed where you had fresh water floating on top of salt water. And this plant that's a nitrogen fixing water fern, it's tiny, it's about a quarter inch across, two millimeters, three millimeters or so, called Azola, A-Z-O-L-L-A, exploded and covered that whole North Arctic basin. And just it, the common name in Asia is mosquito fern because it literally will cover freshwater so thick that mosquitoes can't even lay eggs. And it's crucial to how rice paddies work because it fixes nitrogen. The plant's 45% protein. Uh, all kind of livestock will eat it. Uh, in my ponds, all the fish and frogs eat it. The salamanders eat it. That Azola built up and then sank, built up and sank, so much so that it sequestered half of the CO2 in the atmosphere. This one plant, and I have it growing here. There's 19 species that we can grow. I could give you the amount that would fit in a saucer, and you could cover your bathtub in a few days with this stuff. And that is the oil, Azola. If you wiki the Azola event, geologists talk about this because they look for where Azola blooms happened, and that's where the oil is. And that's why I wanted to tell this story, because that Azola sank, compressed, 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 and became the oil that Royal Dutch Shell got rich off of up in the North Arctic. And so, wow, there's one plant that could fix climate change, CO2 abundance right now. If we put that one plant that I have, I know lots of people that have it, it grows wild, and we could, we could deal with this thing. We could put the military to work seeding this stuff in aquatic ecosystems with the, uh, the airplanes that we shouldn't be killing each other and ruining things. We should be you know, producing oxygen and food and, and restoring the land. So there's just one. And that, you know, we could go the A to Z through plants and we could do the same thing with fungi and the solutions are surrounded us. And to me, I mean, that's what Bill, Bill Mollison said, the theoretical uh, yield of a design is unlimited. The only limit is the imagination of the designer. And that's one of the key permaculture things is to look at problems as solutions. So the classic one was, you don't have a slug problem, you have a duct deficiency. And so, again, I don't know what the solution for nuclear waste is, but I bet you that Paul Stamets might have some well, ideas. Stamets definitely has the, has, has the answer yeah. for that. I mean, Paul Stamets' work, as you brought him up, as you know, he's, he's not only my hero, he's a hero for many of us. And, <clears throat> but, you know, I was in Louisiana during the, the BP oil spill um, after Hurricane Katrina. So you had a natural disaster followed by a man-made disaster all in the same location, more or less, communities devastated, their life resources literally destroyed, and then some. Um, and the devastation still continues, which is just not being talked about. But um, when, you were, when I was there, and I was with an organization called Global Green, I was doing another project, but I just wanted to go and help with the cleanup, just with helping the animals. But, Paul had a solution for that issue. They were pouring dispersants on these plumes to have them dissipate so they yeah. were unrecognizable from the air so you couldn't see them. But Paul's solution was to, I, I'm, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but there's a kind of, as a, some kind of bluegrass or a, a, a sort of a straw that you, he, you could have put on the plumes and then 
captured those uh, plumes with the straw with nets because the the oil would stick to the straw and then you would be able to bring them in to wherever the parts of the shore or at least sort of encapsulate incarcerate them and then by um, spreading oyster mushroom the oyster mushroom would eat up and convert in the same principle that you're talking about yeah did they want to hear anything about it crickets no yeah why so how do we everything you're saying makes complete sense how do we scale it how do we get how do we get the the stormtroopers as i call them to come to the party you thought about a scalable these uh, uh, like scalable systems yeah i i think about this all the time and particularly in this this cultural evolution point that i feel like is happening in the us i've been looking at you know my own privilege and and within permaculture and kind of the culture shift versus you know lifeboat approach and i think you know the lifeboats are a nice thing to fall back on but that prepper mentality of you know i'm just going to look out for what's good for me and my little affinity group that leaves a lot of people and other beings out and so i've been looking at like okay what is and you kind of jokingly talked about the five-year plan but because i have kids you do measure things in terms of like as my kids are grown up i do look at like how could i be more of like you know like we have missionaries the church has missionaries they send out to proselytize and spread the good gospel what does you know we need like a a missionary system for permaculture a missionary system for uh, regenerative mycology and those that actually could deploy and I've, I've coined this term, we joke about it when we work in the field because we have a lot of time where we're just doing menial tasks. I call it the permaculture armada. I'm jokingly after the British armada because the Brits conquered every country on the planet except for 22. Well, what if we had a permaculture armada we could deploy out over the land? Not like Peace Corps, smart white people, let us tell you what to do, mm-hmm. but just you know, I think about sometimes what if we got a 15 person cargo van and a trailer and we loaded it up full of seedlings, trees, greenhouse supplies, fencing materials, a bunch of young people that wanted an adventure, and we headed to a native reservation where we have a, a standing uh, welcome, which there are a few in the Midwest that, uh, that I've been in touch with over the years. They're like, bring it on, we're ready. And then we don't show up with answers, we just show up with the catalyst, just like spores for the mycelium how it'll spread is different but i know that those resources and that's what this time of reparations looks like if if science and the industrial profit driven system hasn't figured out a solution yet maybe we should try solutions coming from different sources and so that's for me personally that's what i'm interested in doing is how i understand a few things about seeds and water systems and food forests based on my own personal experience. I don't know if they would apply to tropical ecosystems because that's so different. But in temperate ecosystems, I could probably have a a few helpful things I could do. And so if we each ask ourselves, particularly those of you that have some boots on the ground experience of a few decades, and then all of that begins to magnify just the way like one spore of a fungi can become the largest living organism on the planet. Like there's some aspen forest out in the center of this country that's like, you know, many square miles, one organism. It came from one microscopic spore. So again, that's a natural pattern. So like one human being, look at all the human beings that inspire us, whether it's a Paul Stamets or a Gandhi 
or a Jane Goodall or, you know, one individual. They, they can do that, have this massive thing. So I know that term scale when used in the, like the techno startup term, sometimes for, for me personally, it bothers me because not everything scales. Some things like the redwoods, they're only there. You have, if you want redwoods, you've got to be in the right little fog belt. So, but I do feel like we're in some strange dystopian movie and there is a, a clock, kind of that old school with the red LED numerals ticking and there's a bit of a doomsday element to it. Maybe that's just because I've watched too many movies and I like the adrenaline that functions uh, when I get you know, that feeling, but it is very palpable, especially when we think of uh, species extinctions, you know, ecosystems, acres of rainforest destroyed. Um, now is not the time to be luxuriating and uh, you know, the obsessive compulsive accumulation of experiences. And if you do have that disorder, maybe it is ways you could be of service to help other beings and ecosystems because it's critical right now. It's like the alarm of midnight is going off. We are not in the 11th hour. If, you're, if you don't hear the alarm, you gotta clean your ears out because it's clearly happening no matter where you look at it. And I think uh, uh, David Holmgren did a good assessment of looking at all of the forces at work right now. And I think economic collapse could be the saving grace because it's the greed-driven economy that's destroying rainforests, that's displacing indigenous people, that's over-harvesting rare wildlife. And if that's not happening, then everything slows down. And we can see with COVID, there's been clear skies, this kind of thing. So I think for each of us individually, if we can't come up for what to do, part of it is like you were talking about earlier, spending some time playing in the sandbox, being creative. How can we unplug from the matrix now and get out of that dopamine pod of the matrix where you're just anesthetized and asleep to all the suffering happening around you and stop feeding it. And, and I'm not sure everybody's doing it, but I think some of us have to be like the big brothers and big sisters. And I'm not talking 1984 big brother. I'm talking about set a good example for your younger sister, your younger brother, you know, don't, don't do those things that you know deep down are not helpful. And hopefully shift more of the, the center point of the culture to the heroes, the ones that we celebrate are the people doing amazing things. Wangari Mathai, planting that green belt across Africa to stop the spread of Sahara. Just simple African women. I don't know if they're simple. It, but it's a simple act, planting trees, but planting billions of trees. Um, nothing, and I think it's nothing simple about that woman. She was a yeah. warrior. <clears throat> yeah. And if you're unfamiliar with it, check it out. She won the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for us, but it entails, I believe, a certain unplugging and then plug that same plug back into Gaia mm -hmm. and, and let it direct you. Because I know for me, I just feel like I'm a puppet and there's like I'm a marionette and there's some puppeteer that I don't know what it is. I could call it nature spirits, elemental beings, this farm. But that's what I'm in service to, Gaia. And I'm just trying to do what I can with the amount of hours I have in the day to increase life. And that's why I always tell the young people, it's like, well, it, it's a lot of money to buy land. It's a lot of work. Get the skills now and work for life. Figure out how you can be in service to life. And it's not always gardening. It's not always raising animals. It could be healing people in their body, spirit, mind, 
It could be educating young people. That's increasing life. But if you're aligned with life, you'll always have a job. If you are somehow plugged into the destruction of life, you need to yank that plug out of the wall right now because it's not helping anybody. Definitely yourself. And I, I really, you know, again, I think economic collapse or at least a downturn in the dollar could be just like this another saving grace. We need a, a good friend, uh, Joanne Rand, had a song where she said it's miracles are nothing, love or bust. And I think we're at that point. I think on that note, we've got to wrap it up, Don. <laughs> I, think yeah. that's, I think that's a perfect, perfect note to, to, to stop on. You know, I think that much like, the, much like the virus, we need to mutate. Yeah. And let's hope that we mutate faster than it does because there's no way that we're going to be able to keep up with, with them. They're always going to outsmart us. So really, this is, this is our opportunity. I completely agree with you where we can actually look in and, 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 and heal and make some, some really necessary adjustments. Thank you for... Um, for you showing up and being you and being, you know, a, a light for everybody and for, for, for me. And um, I send you all the best and Godspeed wherever it is that we're going. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Rona. Yeah. That was all right. Pleasure. Sending you love. Have everybody's heads just officially blown off? Was that just TMI, information overload? Or does everyone just feel compelled to jump out of their armchairs and run outside into nature and roll around in mud and cover themselves in earthworms and propel yourself towards the nearest tree and just give it a giant hug? Um, no, glibness aside, that was a wonderful chat with Mr. Don Tipping and please do follow up on his work. Um, I'll be posting links to the websites, but you can take a look at Siskiyou Seeds on Instagram. That's spelled S-I-S-K-I-Y-O-U Seeds. And that's on at siskiyouseeds.com and sevenseedsfarm.com. And they will be running a Seed Academy program this October 15th to the 18th which is kind of awesome. Go get your hands in some mud and learn about seeds. And if you enjoyed this episode and you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to The Last Arc on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Every little nice thing helps. And you can also rate and review us, which would be really nice, on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow me. I am Rona Mitra and The Last Little Arc on Instagram. Please take care of yourselves be kind, be mindful. There's a way through this. We just have to keep our lights on and just just connect ourselves to, the, as I call them, the fireflies. Just keep it lit up. Keep on spreading the goodness. Keep on spreading the love. It's all we got. It really is. It's our superhero power. I send you lots of love and I look forward to connecting with you next week. Mm-hmm.